Hello, friends, and welcome to the National Deer Association's Coffee and Deer Podcast. As always, with your host, I'm Nick Penizzato, joined by the doctor, Mr. Mike Groman. And we're both a mess <laughs> to start the show. The doctor's got a pounding head. I'm getting over a cold. But uh, you know what? We're going to answer the call and we're going to power through it. And we got a good episode for you here today. Uh, we're going to have Ian Gehrig. He's a wildlife health technician with the University of Pennsylvania School of Veterinary Medicine, affectionately known as PennVet. And he's also part of the Pennsylvania Wildlife Futures Program, which we're going to talk about. Uh, you know, there are all kinds of cool things that happen out there on a daily basis when it comes to wildlife science and management. And most people have no idea that it's happening. It's kind of like you, you turn on your water every day and water just flows out. Well, <laughs> there's a reason that that happens. There are a lot of people behind the scenes doing good work. And that's very much the same way it is with wildlife health technicians. So we thought this would be a good subject to bring to the table today. As always, the doctor is in the house. Uh, Mike, other than struggling with headaches and that type of thing, uh, what do you what have you been doing to take advantage of this uh, nice cycle of spring weather that we've been having? So for me, I've been getting the, the maple syrup equipment cleaned up, ready to go. Um, I'm trying a new evaporator this year, so getting that insulated. And I need to test run it first, but that's really all I'm working on right now. Well, that's a lot, though. I remember watching you do this last year, and I thought, you know, the doctor is going to just continue to evolve, evolve this thing. And the maple syrup that you gave me was awesome. And there's nothing better. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing better than, I mean, you can buy maple syrup in the store that's got some big national name on it, but there's nothing better than, you know, just the fresh stuff that you, that, you know, some people make locally. Uh, you know, you and I, the one farm that we hunt here has had a maple syrup operation for a long time. They produce an outstanding product and you just can't beat it. I just, I wish I, I guess, had the time or wherewithal to get into it. Maybe someday. But uh, yeah, we'll follow along with that, which is good. Um, you know, what killed me is getting over the stinking cold. I had to more or less sit here and look outside and watch the beautiful weather, not do a stinking thing. And you know me, that kills me. I can't, I can't stand doing that. And even today, even though I feel great, I think I'm over the main part of the cold. It's now gotten me in my vocal cords. And so it's just annoying. So well, anyway, good. <laughs> well, I mean, it's just one of those things, you know, when you're, when you're recording something like this, you always are trying to put your best foot forward and people don't realize just like everybody else that's listening goes through these ups and downs and, you know, we go through them as well. So, but it's all part of it. You know, you kind of have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and move forward. It's not every day is the, your best day, but you can still make it as good as you possibly can and realize that tomorrow can only get better. That's exactly right. And I only get sick about twice a year, but I'm a, I'm not good at it. I don't like it. <laughs> get more is, you know, not that I feel, I can get over not feeling well, that's fine. But it's just the uh, idea that I can't do the things that I want to do. I can't go to the gym. I can't go outside and do the things I want to do. And so it's frustrating, but anyway, uh, boohoo, no one cares about my problems or your problems. <laughs> or mine. So. Uh, so with that, let's go ahead and get into the interview with Ian Gehrig. I'd like to welcome to the show Ian Gehrig. He's a wildlife health technician at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, more specifically with PennVet. So that's the School of Veterinary Medicine at uh, at Penn, UPenn. He is out of the southeast region of the state uh, as part of the Wildlife Futures Program, which we're going to have him tell us about here in a little bit. But uh, Ian, thanks for being on the show. I think folks will be interested to hear about uh, this aspect of the work that's going on out there. But if you don't mind, fill us in a little bit about yourself. My pleasure, Nick. Thanks for having me. Uh, my name, as you mentioned, is Ian Gehrig. I'm the wildlife health technician here in the southeast region of Pennsylvania for the Wildlife Futures Program. Um, I'm originally from Connecticut. I moved to Pennsylvania about uh, 10 years ago. Uh, didn't get into hunting or fishing or anything like that or really anything outdoors other than hiking until um, my elementary school friend um, and his father got me involved. Uh, started out with fishing and then got into hunting later on. Really enjoyed that and continued that interest as I moved down here to Pennsylvania. 
um, and really had had fun with it ever since. Yeah, good deal. That's just part of being here in Pennsylvania. I think just about everybody hunts here. It seems like, even though I know that that's not exactly true, but uh, yeah, well, you've been here 10 years, but Hey, welcome. Welcome again to Pennsylvania. <laughs> Making the most of it. It's great. Yep, absolutely. So before we get into the details specifically of your work, if you would just tell us a little bit about uh, maybe just Penn Vet and also the Wildlife Futures Program. Sure. So Penn Vet is the uh, veterinary school of the University of Pennsylvania. Um, so there's two real branches of that uh, here in the southeast corner of the state. The main campus is down in Philadelphia uh, with the branch campus or the large animal campus, I really should call it. Um, over in Kennett Square um, in Chester County. So that's where uh, the majority of the large animals like the horses and cows are, um, but there's also where our wildlife futures program is. Um, and we're based essentially out of there as an office, but we also have us field techs um, that are actually based out of the regional offices of the game commission. So I work not only out of New Bolton, but also um, out of the regional office here in Reading, um, but I would say most of the time you'd actually find me driving around the counties here in the southeast, uh, working on cases or collecting research samples um, for my vehicle. Yeah, there's a lot of cool aspects to this. And I can tell you, I have been to the facility there and been uh, with the with uh, we've, we've been working with uh, with UPenn and the Game Commission as part of the Wildlife Futures Program. And it's a something that we're very proud of. It's it's a really rewarding work and really important work. And uh, I know we're talking specifically about Pennsylvania here today, but this goes on around the country. And we have partnerships with various universities and do work with them for different things. But the Wildlife Futures Program is really just a unique uh, kind of cool program. And so we're, we're excited to have you on to tell us a little bit about what goes on in your daily life. So um, what drove you to, to do this as a profession? What, when did you have that interest in this, say, you know what, I want to deal with wildlife health? That's a great question. You know, I would say that, like many people during the pandemic, uh, I really had a, a, a deep thought about what I wanted to do with my life. And I was in more of a management role um, and felt like I was super disconnected from the outdoors and not really doing my part um, to help advance our knowledge um, to protect and conserve wildlife. And I saw this position come up and I said, wow, I mean, what a chance to get back out in the outdoors and contribute to you know, our collective knowledge of wildlife and how we can better manage them. Um, and I'd also say that, you know, of course, because the pandemic affected people and there was a lot of thought about where it came from with animals involved, uh, what a cool opportunity to talk about that one health concept and how animal health, wild animal health can also affect people. So the, the timing was just right that all those things converged uh, and it's been super fun ever since. So you threw out the term One Health, and I know what that means, but I'm guessing a lot of our listeners do not. And so tell us a little bit about what that is. Sure. So One Health is the concept that human health, environmental factors, wildlife health, your pet's health, those are all interconnected and making sure that we are not only vigilant against diseases that may be impacting any one of those, but certainly vigilant against diseases that could impact all of those. Yep. Very good. And so the pandemic certainly should have been a lesson uh, in one health for everybody. And it's interesting that it was during the pandemic that you sort of had this thought that, hey, this is what I want to do. Yeah, the timing was perfect. So what were you doing before that? Trying to take us through your career path. Sure. Um, it's probably a unique meandering path a bit. Um, I initially started out after I left college working in Alaska, uh, actually up at the Alaska Sea Life Center with seabirds. Uh, always had an interest in birds, moved back to my home state of Connecticut, uh, worked for 10 years as the aviculturist, so the, the director of bird breeding um, for the former uh, secretary of the Smithsonian's bird collection, believe it or not, <laughs> uh, and then moved to Pennsylvania and became the curator of birds at the Philadelphia Zoo um, and moved up the ranks there before coming to Wildlife Futures. So always related to animals, but uh, certainly probably not the way that most wildlife folks came into it. Uh, so I'm sitting on an airplane the other day coming home and uh, inevitably someone, you get into a conversation and someone says, oh, what do you do? So whenever you're doing that and you tell them you are the director of bird breeding, 
I mean, what kind of looks do you get with that one? <laughs> oh, it's it's funny that you bring up the, the airplane because I, I actually once flew with a kingfisher stowed under my seat that was going to another zoo. And the, the conversation I had with the person next to me, um, I, it probably started as a fear-based conversation about when is that bird going to get out? Um, but I thought <laughs> by the end of the flight, we had talked about island endemics and and everything in between so it uh it was it's definitely ed educational for them but i i don't know if they'd want to do it again now i'm intrigued how is it that you check in a bird i mean i've seen dogs obviously and cats uh maybe even a ferret or two or something like that but how what is it when you go to the counter with a bird like how does that happen uh some early heads up to tsa that's really the big chunk of it yep. yeah yeah I can't imagine a bird being loose flying around in the airplane, but uh, anyway, that's it wasn't, wasn't what I was expecting to ask you today, but I think that's <laughs> definitely interesting story. So can you give us an overview of how, at least in Pennsylvania, wildlife technicians are deployed across the state? You're not, you're not tasked with covering the whole state. You just have one slice of the pie, right? That's correct. So I have the Southeast region of the state. It's probably one of the, the parts of the state that has the most human wildlife interaction. I mean, really, there's there's more people here, uh, and there's certainly a diversity of habitats. I mean, you look at Northampton County or Schuylkill County and some of those more rural parts of our region, uh, all the way down to Philadelphia and Delaware County, uh, and what goes on there and that kind of interface uh, between a variety of people, not just hunters, um, you know, landowners, people walking their dogs, um, and throughout all those interactions, people are observing um, animals of concern. And it could be, you know, the deer with a broken leg that's at their bird feeder, or it could be um, a fox that they harvested that had some sort of unusual lesion that they weren't expecting to see. Uh, and in all of those cases, uh, through a variety of different ways, uh, we try and get involved in those to A, educate the public and ensure that, um, you know, we're, we're, we're protecting folks from anything that might be uh, particularly concerning to them, uh, but also utilizing those opportunities to um, further our knowledge through research of wildlife disease. Um, so, so every day is is truly different. Um, our our cases, if you'll call them that, um, come through a variety of different factors. Um, sometimes that's they're they're calling the game commission and they're working through dispatch. Um, we might get a report directly from a game warden. That says, hey, you know, I've got a deer here that's super emaciated. I'm not sure what's going on with it. Can you check it out? Um, other times it's using what's here in Pennsylvania called the Wildlife Health Survey, uh, which is an online tool that folks can use uh, to report sick or dead wildlife. Um, so they come in from a variety of directions. Um, and then we assess each case individually, of course. So, Ian, I'm going to jump in here just for a second. Let's Let's actually get that information out there because I think that that wildlife health survey information is something that at least Pennsylvania residents need to be aware of and maybe individuals in other states might have something similar. So um, being a previous Pennsylvania resident, I wasn't aware that I could get online, if you will. And so talk us through that process. And um, for those of you that are not from Pennsylvania, maybe check in a similar resource location to see if your state has something similar. Sure, Mike. Thanks for bringing that up. Uh, so the Wildlife Health Survey is a relatively recent tool that's available to folks in Pennsylvania to report sick or dead animals of disease concern um, or any really sick or dead animal that they're concerned about. Uh, and that is available on the Game Commission's website. Um, you can also Google it. Uh, Wildlife Health Survey will get you there. Um, and it's a great opportunity for people to report things that are of concern to them. Those reports come directly to us at Wildlife Futures uh, and also to the folks at the Game Commission. If it's a live animal or something that a warden may have to deal with, um, they also are aware. So it works out really nicely and it helps us provide timely responses um, and make sure we're on top of anything that might be concerning. Yeah, I like that process just because it seems to better direct the information to the appropriate resource. Because uh, for me, it would have been a, a call to the game warden and they might have not really had a significant hand in dealing with that. So yeah, I really like that. I'll have to check to see if there's something similar here in New York. Oh yeah, definitely check it out. And it's um, it's a nice tool too, because people can pin the location right from their phone they can send photos. Um, so we, we're better prepared for what we may want to respond to 
um, in those individual cases and typically get back, back to people pretty quickly. You're leading me into a direction now as I think about this because uh, wildlife do not know political boundaries. So uh, we've, we've mentioned New York and Pennsylvania here. A deer living along the border, I'm sure, crosses multiple times uh, back and forth across the state lines. And so therefore, it is important that you're speaking to your neighbors across state lines, particularly on wildlife health, health issues, right? Absolutely. And if you think about what mammals can do, you can compound that even further with what migratory birds might be able to do as far as their movements. So it's important that all these agencies are are talking about things of concern uh, and making sure that we're working together um, to address anything that's emerging or occurring at the time. You said something earlier too, and you're unique in that you work in the Southeast region, which is a very, the, the most populous region of the state. And so one of the things that always tends to frustrate me is people's general knowledge, or I should say lack of knowledge about wildlife. And so like the other day I was scrolling through Facebook or whatever, and someone has a picture of some deer and and they're bedded down under their feet or said, oh, the deer family came back. You know, like they're speaking of them like human beings, like it's a family of deer. Okay. And so that kind of stuff, I don't have hair as it is, but it makes me pull my hair out. Yeah. How do you, it inevitably you are encountering all types of people with all types of questions. Yep. One of your skills has to be sort of like empathy, but also patience. Uh, how do you maintain your composure when you're confronted with some of these, you know, wild things that you hear from people? I, I've gotten better at it over time. Um, <laughs> you know, there, there's seasonality to a lot of the the general concerns we get. So there, there's always the uh, times of year when, when deer are shedding and those concerns that, oh, they're, they're mange, it's a zombie deer, whatever it might be, those come up quite frequently. And you can kind of predict those now, now that we're a couple of years into this to say, you know, this is the time of year we're gonna get the whatever calls. Um, but, but in general, I say that, you know, I assume good intent. These are folks that took time out of their day to report a wildlife concern to, that was, at least was a concern to them. And I think that's important to acknowledge and appreciate uh, because, you know, in today's day and age where folks are busy and attached to tech, the fact that they, you know, took the time to report that, it means a lot um, to me. And, and I'm certainly happy to to address their concerns. Well, Ian, I think that that's a really good perspective to have, because as people that are uh, hunters or very in tune to wildlife habits, whether it uh, be the seasonal changes or the biological, physiological changes they go through, we have to remember that there is a certain percentage of the population that have little to no experience, dedicated knowledge, etc. I mean, I, um, we, you know, would take in uh, children from the inner cities uh, at our place and over the summer, and the first time that an individual actually saw a male cow was it just completely confounded, you know, I couldn't get my mind wrapped around that. But to say that that is not very unusual for individuals to have little to no wildlife experience or knowledge. It is. And again, at least here in the southeast part of Pennsylvania, we see the whole gamut. I mean, I see diehard trappers all the way to folks that may have never left the city that they're in. Uh, and, and, you know, ensuring that, A, those, those folks, any concerns they have are addressed, and also that, you know, we're protecting their health and the wildlife health around them is equally important. Um, you know, I'd say we, we certainly get different questions from those two groups, um, but this level of concern is certainly the same. Yeah. I've often believed that people, average person out there generally cares about wildlife they don't like to see wildlife hurt they don't like to see wildlife sick or you know dead along the road that type of thing but then i also believe that sometimes they love wildlife too much or maybe that's the wrong way to say it they maybe love wildlife in the wrong way yeah. meaning their lack of education and their desire to think of wildlife as they would human beings gets them into uh sort of this uh, moral struggle do you encounter that a lot in your work? Yeah, I mean, anthropomorphism in, in any at any angle is is a slippery slope. 
Um, but again, I would say that we see challenges with folks, you know, feeding wildlife and the issues that can come from that. And, and by feeding wildlife, that's a, a broad concept, but it can be anything from, you know, cat food left out on their back porch and then, you know, wondering why they've got mangy foxes up there or, you know, bird feeders where their house finches have conjunctivitis and, you know, I'm trying to help help the birds. How can me feeding them be spreading this, um, you know, down to to concentrating deer and, and what that might do. So there's there's just a whole bunch going on there um, and certainly strong opinions. Um, our perspective is from a disease standpoint. So, you know, we yeah. certainly give them that information, um, but it's it's a constant dialogue. Yeah, we see it a lot with deer too, it's particularly the animals that are warm and fuzzy and got the big brown eyes. There's a reason why they, they call it doe eyes, right? Um, and so for deer as an example, when it comes to urban deer conflicts, you know, human conflicts with deer in urban areas and people, and you see, I've saw, read a lot about this in Staten Island, for example, where they, there are groups of people that are actually doing vasectomies mm -hmm. on wild deer and thinking that they're helping them when the reality is the best thing is to essentially eliminate a certain number of deer to humanely take them, take their lives. Um, we see that a lot in the deer world. And so out of all the different critters that you deal with, is it mostly deer that draw the biggest um, emotion or is it pretty much just any animal? It's difficult to say. I, I'd say that deer are definitely in the top three. Um, I think part of it is they are large and visible on the landscape. Um, and I think that in an increasingly, excuse me, increasingly disconnected world, I think they provide that link um, to the wild. And I think a lot of people embrace that. Um, I'd say it's, it's likely deer, um, songbirds, and then number three could be a wild card depending on on exactly where you are. Um, but it, it's it's definitely those those animals that approach closely, um, and folks are able to observe. Um, the the exception I would say are when, when we see larger mortalities, um, mm -hmm. and then it doesn't seem to matter what it is. Folks say, "Wow, that's I should not be seeing thirteen dead geese, should I?" Um, let's talk to someone about that. Yeah, I would say that the snake lobby or the rat lobby is not as big as the uh, the deer or the bear lobby. We we don't work with herps. Um, <laughs> I don't think we'd get a lot of calls about them, but uh, you're right. Yeah, even bats are an interesting one, right? Because bats, I think people appreciate bats in a general sense. They don't want them in their house, and they you know they don't want them. They have that misconception about they're going to get in your hair and all that nonsense. But um, but I think people care about it. They care about things like white nose syndrome, um, but they're not the warm and fuzzy kind of creature. So uh, since I brought up bats, do you, do you have any, a lot of those types of issues? You know, it's interesting. Bats, um, as you know, they, they have a whole slew of different concerns right now, white nose being a big one. Um, the majority of the bats that we see are often young bats that have been displaced um, and they end up hanging on the side of someone's house or, you know, some other situation where they're encountered near the house. Um, and we get reports of those. Um, most of the, the other bat calls that we deal with are rabies concerns. Mm -hmm. So bats are certainly a rabies vector. Any mammal could be a rabies vector. Uh, and the problem with bats is, you know, they often show up in houses, folks don't know how long they've been there. They've got kids in the house um, that may not report a bite. And in those situations, it's important that that bat be tested for rabies uh, as quickly as possible so that we can address any health concerns that those people might have as well. Um, so there's a fair amount of those encounters. Fortunately for us, unfortunately for the game wardens of Pennsylvania, it mostly falls on them. Oh, I see. Um, but we certainly do follow up with those cases to make sure they they get um, completed. Gotcha. So you talked about this a little bit earlier. I'll give you a chance to elaborate a little bit. My question was going to be, what does a typical day in the life of a wildlife technician look like? And so 
you may have some days that are kind of that go as planned, but maybe the atypical thing is the more common. So if you had a typical day, what, what would it look like? And if you just never have a typical day, I think that's good too. Well, I, I'd say there's a little bit of seasonality to it. Um, you know, this time of year, we're certainly um, utilizing hunter and trapper harvests um, for data collection, for research. Um, and that could be anything from collecting CWD research samples from hunter harvested deer or roadkill deer. Um, today, for example, um, I traveled to three different taxidermists collecting canid carcasses um, for a tapeworm study we're working on. Um, and those animals have been processed for what the taxidermists were going to do with them. Um, and now I've been able to take further advantage of those carcasses. Um, as I go around collecting those research samples, I'm always prepared, though, that there could be a call from a warden or from dispatch or from the Wildlife Health Survey that says, you know, hey, we have a species X um, that is concerned in, let's say, Berks County. Um, and I'll certainly follow up on that first, um, because sample preservation is always a concern. It's less of a concern when it's freezing or below freezing. Um, come August, we're, we're very prompt on trying to get to carcasses because they don't last <laughs> very long. Um, but again, it's, it's, it's knowing that you have these research samples that are available and, and you want to take advantage of, um, but also being aware that, you know, we're going to have to respond to any variety of disease concerns um, and being prepared for that. And our, and our trucks are, are well set up for that. Um, but it's, it's just being aware of what could be coming. So all that you've seen out there, I have to ask this question. Give us uh, one or maybe two of the craziest things that have ever happened to you so far on the job or craziest things that you've seen or done out there. Uh, that's interesting. Okay. <laughs> um, I've had two, uh, in my time as a health tech here in the Southeast, I've had two outbreaks of hemorrhagic disease. Mm. Um, and those are really challenging because you know you've got folks reporting you know three four five or more dead deer um and you're not only trying to address their immediate concerns of you know what am i doing with these carcasses can, can will you take them with you um and we're certainly not a carcass disposal service right um to you know you know i've hunted here for 30 years how many of my deer are going to be lost and, and those concerns. Um, so it's not only addressing the immediate um, aftermath of some of these deaths, it's also addressing the personal concerns that a person have, or, or you know, how can I follow up um, or closing the loop afterwards? Um, so that, that gets a little clunky. Um, so dealing with both of those outbreaks was challenging. Um, yeah, I would say that it, it was important to get those results and to get that information back to people um, because in the absence of that information, rumors start, um, you know, misinformation gets out there. So it's important to kind of educate people as we go. Um, so those were both pretty challenging times. And then I'd say the other one was um, even influenza, uh, hmm. the first outbreak about two years ago. Um, you know, we'd get dribs and drabs. So like the, the first outbreak here in Pennsylvania was in a bald eagle out in Chester County. Um, and certainly not something I was excited to find was that that first case, but it kind of tipped us off that, hey, you know, it's in the state. Uh, let's start, you know, being more vigilant about it. Um, and then one day I get a call that there's a couple dead black vultures up in Montgomery County. Um, so that, that kind of piqued my interest. So I headed up there and it turned out that there were 220 dead black vultures along wow. this creek. Um, so the scale of some of these outbreaks can be pretty significant. Um, and then, of course, it's, you know, making sure that from a biosecurity standpoint, I'm not tracking avian influenza out of that site. Um, so it's 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 kind of wrapping your head around all those things, which, you know, on a hot August evening is not always um, the most pleasurable, but it's important that we're doing it. All right. So let's let's expand upon containment, more specifically infection or potential pathogen containment. Can you share with everybody what kind of training goes into doing the job that you do? The National Deer Association is proud to partner with Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's in its mission to support and advocate for quality deer populations, wildlife habitat, and hunting. 
a generous grant from the Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's Outdoor Fund, through customers rounding up their purchase at the register and online, is making an impact for conservation immediately and for future generations of hunters and outdoor enthusiasts. Through this tireless work and support, Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's is helping to ensure the future of wild deer, wildlife habitat, and hunting. Well, we're fortunate to work with a variety of super knowledgeable and experienced veterinarians at New Bolton Center, uh, and I would say equally experienced uh, folks at the Game Commission. So working with them and kind of understanding the disease risks, and each of them have their own, um, is a good start. Uh, we certainly consult with them. Uh, we also consult with the Department of Ag and other folks um, that might have a concern with a particular disease, such as highly pathogenic avian influenza. Um, and then it's, you know, understanding how to use and, and what PPE to use and when. Um, so PPE is your personal protective equipment. Uh, I would say that I should own stock in an exam glove company because, I mean, we're wearing gloves constantly and changing gloves out constantly. Uh, but it's also protecting your eyes and your mouth and any other mucous membrane, um, primarily for those contacts. But when we're dealing with, you know, a big even influenza outbreak, we're in Tyvek, our, our gloves are taped to our Tyvek, and we're, we're pretty cautious. Um, and then, you know, like anyone who's outdoors, we're, we're checking for ticks. We're doing all the things that you should do kind of on the backside of those activities to make sure that, um, you know, you're not bringing any of this home with you. Um, we always carry spare clothes in our vehicles, change them out, um, you know, just to be cautious, not only for the protection of wildlife, but for ourselves, our families, our pets, um, certainly don't want to be bringing any of that home with you. All right. So just for everybody else, in case you missed it, mucous membranes are uh, an, a very easy way for pathogens to enter our body. And so mucous membranes are areas where we have specific glands uh, inside your eyelids, your mouth, your nose, all of those areas. And actually in some individuals like your your private parts as well, or there's mucous membranes there. So you kind of have to watch um, those areas because it just offers a freeway uh, into your body for any infectious yep. agent. It's a oh. direct track. Yep. I'm now suddenly afraid to walk outside. Uh, <laughs> if we actually, you know, thought about all the things that could get you out there, the human body is a remarkable thing in the way it fights those things off. But to your to the point, both you guys are making, let's not make it easy for them to do that. Um, let's switch to this for a second. So a lot of your work that we've talked about here is kind of reactionary, right? There's an issue, you react to it. But you also touched on this a little bit earlier in the conversation, and that is you're also contributing to research. So maybe talk a little bit about that, some of the work that you do that that lends itself to uh, help take precautions or take measures to protect wildlife and humans from wildlife-based diseases? Sure. Um, that's a great question. So, you know, I'd say about 50% of my day, um, an average day, is is working on collecting these research samples. And we have a variety of different uh, projects going on now, some that are certainly um, correlated with human health. So, you know, there's an Aconococcus tapeworm study we're doing with canids um, to understand the prevalence of that tapeworm here in Pennsylvania. Um, we're doing a similar study with mustelids. So your, your skunks and your otters and your fishers and mink and that type of animal, um, looking at another type of tapeworm, um, both with potential human health effects. Um, but we're also looking at um, things like woodcock and heavy metals that could build up in woodcock. You think about what woodcock eat they're worms. Well, worms are full of the earth. Um, the earth is potentially full of heavy metals. So, you know, collecting those samples opportunistically, looking at species like barn owls um, for anticoagulant rodenticides that might be building up in those species. Again, with opportunities to help us address uh, potential concerns that might come from those animals living around humans um, and how we might better manage those populations. Um, you know, we're looking at distemper research in gray fox. Uh, hmm. We're looking at uh, just a variety of different things. And that's, you know, I, I, I joke that animals are dying to see me. Um, but at the same time, it, it's, I would have never thought that I'd be so excited at some of these research opportunities. Um, you know, I, I once had a, uh, a trapper call me that said that they had caught a, um, one of a, an ermine so one of the different weasels that's found in pennsylvania 
that was my first one. And I was probably way too excited on that phone call when he <laughs> told me just because yeah. it's, you know, I appreciate all wildlife. Um, and I was super excited to see that animal and know that it was contributing to science. Um, so it's, it's almost like Christmas morning. I mean, every day we don't know what's coming. Um, but knowing that those opportunities are there to help, you know, address disease concerns, but also to move research forward is really fun. Yeah. All right. So we talked about some of the, the heavy lifting side of that with research and some of the technical things. If you have the stage now for a second, if you had a chance to better educate the public on a few specific topics that might make your life easier in regards to understanding some of these issues that you run into day in and day out that might um, at least make a really good public service announcement. How, what would you share with the public? Well, I mean, I would start by saying wear gloves. Um, the, the least you could do from a personal protective equipment to minimize your risks um, are to bring some gloves with you and some examination latex type gloves. Um, I unfortunately receive a lot of photos of folks that have found animal X and the first thing you see is their bare hands with cuts all over them handling this animal. And it's like, that's, that's really not best practice. Um, so I know that sounds cheesy and people are like, I've never worn gloves in my entire life, but it's a super cheap, super easy investment to protect your health. Um, I would say that's number one. Number two, if you do find an animal um, that you're concerned about from a disease perspective, make sure that you can keep it cool um, or safe until we can get there. Um, sometimes we get messages two weeks later from somebody that says, I was hiking and I saw this, you know, whatever, and I'm pretty sure it had disease X, mm. uh, but it was two weeks ago and I can't really tell you where it was. Not helpful. Um, so good luck. Um, so, you know, that, that doesn't really help us that much. Um, and certainly it's something we'd love to follow up on for them. Uh, and then I would say, you know, finally, it's simply report this stuff. Um, you know, we we are here to help and here to advance our understanding of these diseases. Um, and we can't really respond to them if we don't know about them. Um, and I know that, you know, as an outdoorsman myself, you know, I've seen things in my lifetime that, you know, prior to working for Wildlife Futures, I probably would have been like, wow, you know, that's weird. That's a dead otter and poked it with a stick and moved on. But, you know, in hindsight, why is there a perfectly healthy looking dead otter on the edge of this creek? Um, that's not typical. So it's, again, reporting it and, and let the professionals suss out whether it's something to be concerned about or not. All right. So just to recap, I have protect yourself, which literally also protects your family. So Correct. some type of barrier between you and that animal and or just leave it be and protect it to make sure it's still there when someone comes to investigate it report and report soon. So that's what I have, everybody. Perfect. Thank you. Sure. Along those lines, um, and actually to your point about different things that you, you could encounter, all kinds of different things. I've had the fortune of being in, in several wildlife and even human health labs. And in the wildlife labs, you don't, you could see any type of animal in there that was picked up potentially by a technician. I remember when I was in Michigan State recently, uh, they had several different you know, critters that they were looking at there. So you really just uh, looking at all types of things. But I want to make this point, and this is why also we feel it's important to have someone like yourself on here to have this discussion. And that is, I just want to remind people, there is real science going on out there all around you that, that most of you are completely unaware of. And so it gets frustrating uh for those of us, especially for folks like Ian, who work directly in this, but even those of us who work in wildlife or in even the doctor's case there who works in human health, whenever you have people that want to dispute science or they want to they want to say uh, things like, oh, like this whole this whole CWD thing's made up and it's just people that are trying to make money or or the same thing. Maybe it's something with birds or any kind of wildlife. And here's the reality, folks, folks like Ian are out there on the daily 
doing this work. They're doing this work for research. They're doing this work to protect healthy animals, and they're doing this work to find out why animals are unhealthy and also to protect you as human beings from animals that may not be healthy. And so, uh, Ian, in, in a lot of ways, you're one of those unsung heroes out there, you and your counterparts in Pennsylvania, but also all across the country where there are wildlife health technicians. Uh, and also, I want to point out, putting yourself at risk uh, in some of these cases. So I first want to say thank you for that. Uh, and also, I hope that you're being thanked by people out there who you encounter who likely had no idea that a wildlife health technician even existed. Well, thanks for that, and uh, and I appreciate that. And it's um, it is nice to to kind of have these these conversations with folks. And again, it's it's anyone from a diehard lifetime deer hunter to somebody who feeds birds in their backyard, and and having those interactions and having the opportunity to educate them, to you know, talk shop with them, whatever it might be, um, are really great interactions. And I and I look forward to continuing those. Um, but I would say that you know, there's. There's also opportunities for folks to to help, and it's again, it's reporting those concerns. It's it's communicating those with the game commission or through the wildlife health survey or whatever it might be, um, so that we can continue to be out there and be vigilant. Um, and I, I would also, you know, add to that, there are certain samples that you might be able to help us find. Uh, if you're an upland bird hunter and you have grouse carcasses or you know what, whatever it might be. There are opportunities for you to contribute to that research, which will help that species. Um, so, you know, think about those opportunities and certainly reach out to your your respective agencies um, to see if there are opportunities there to collaborate. Um, because, you know, as as certainly stakeholders in wildlife management, um, you know, it's great to provide that information and those opportunities for more research. Yes. Be a citizen scientist when you can be. You can help. And I think that would be my plea to anybody listening to this, which I assume are mostly deer hunters. Uh, you know, the, the game commissions and so on do not exist to frustrate you on your deer hunting season, okay? Uh, there's a whole lot of other things that go on out there that are for the greater health of wildlife. And so I ask you to please consider that and not make it all be just about you. Not that that would ever happen. Uh, uh, and just be aware of it. And I can tell you that, first-hand account as a partner in the Wildlife Futures Program, and having seen these similar programs in other states, uh, it is just a absolutely blue-ribbon group of people uh, from yourself, uh, Ian, out there being out there in the field, all the way to the folks I interact with in the labs and in the administrative level, and it's been a real pleasure uh, to work with you all, and we do appreciate you coming on here to help educate our listeners, uh, so uh, we'll leave it at that unless there's anything else you'd like to add. Thanks, Nick. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Um, I, you know, I would say essentially check out our website, uh, Google Wildlife Futures, learn more about what we're doing. Uh, again, if you're out of state, you know, find a similar agency within your state that you can um, be be helpful with and can help you. Um, and again, if you're you're interested in more in what we're doing, please reach out. Uh, be happy to touch base. And again, report those concerns. Yep. And specifically in Pennsylvania, you can go to www.vet.upenn.edu and slash wildlife futures, or just Google wildlife futures program, <laughs> which is always the easier. So thanks again, Ian. We do appreciate you being on. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. As I said in the intro, Mike, I think it's important that we shed light on the type of work that Ian and others are doing. And this goes on all across the country, not just in Pennsylvania. Um, but I, like I said, I don't think most people have any idea that this is happening. No, and, and as you heard in the interview, I didn't either. And to me, those are things that are interesting because we always are trying to support the sport that we love so much. So to be able to report any type of sick animal so that it can be adequately investigated for the overall betterment of the herd, the flock, or otherwise, is important. Yeah, I thought it was neat when he said he wakes up every day. He doesn't necessarily have any idea <laughs> what he's going to be getting into, and I think that keeps it interesting for sure. Uh, and not only does he get involved with the reactive work or responding to issues, he's also working on, you know, protections and from wildlife diseases, and this is all happening, like I said, all across the country. So there's what's happening now that you have to respond to, and then there is the um, – 
preemptive work, the research to help kind of prevent issues. So I don't know. I think uh, it's got to be pretty cool not knowing exactly what you'll be doing each day, right? Well, and that's the one thing from working in the hospital for years, our, my schedule was never the same and you never knew what you were walking into. You could kind of get an idea, but someone would show up in the ER, the, the OR would call, hey, we need to get you to put a brace on. So the only reason I'm mentioning this is because for someone like me, I like being very active. Like if I sit down to finally watch TV or a movie, I'll actually watch multiple movies or shows at a time when a commercial comes on because I can't sit through the commercial. But I had a coworker <laughs> that was very regimented and he had a very tough time adapting to that. So I guess based on the type of personality that you have, I think, uh, you know, if Ian was one of those people that he had to have a very rigid schedule and this was the job, I don't think that it would be as good for him. So that's the one good thing I always have told my kids and I tell people is that find a job that matches your personality type and you'll love it and you'll be really good at it. Yeah, absolutely. And clearly Ian is passionate about his work and I think does a great job. So appreciate him being on the show to talk about his work and the Pennsylvania Wildlife Futures Program. Hey, Mike, I was at SHOT Show last week. Uh, again, it was gigantic, more than 55,000 people there. So you imagine like that's like going to an NFL game, it's packed stadium. That's how many people are going through SHOT Show. Uh, we had several great meetings with our, with our current supporters and some potential new partners. So looking forward to seeing how that all pans out. And as always, I returned home exhausted. Uh, I take the red eye back. You and I talked about this. You were reminding me to take lots of caffeine and stay awake as I'm driving home from the airport. But uh, that's probably also, I don't think I got sick at SHOT Show, but I think I came home and my son had been sick. And so I think just being run down is, is probably what led to this. And, uh, you know, the SHOT Show is particularly hard on people who live on the East Coast like myself. Uh, it's not so hard getting out there. It's just that there's no real great way to get home without ending up exhausted. So, uh, but anyway, it was, it was a great show. Well, it's always interesting to be able to see what's, what's what for the year. I mean, to, to me, it's almost kind of the, you know, being your close friend is it's always kind of like the kickoff of, of the year or the culmination of the previous year, because it lands at that time where most seasons are out or going out and we're thinking about getting ready for the next year. So I always like to hear what your feedback is about interesting products or, you know, groups that you actually met with and some of the upcoming plans. So I kind of live vicariously through you that way. Yeah. I mean, it's a heck of a show and it's not just outdoor stuff. Actually, it's uh, equally, if not more military, you got folks from the FBI there, some of the stuff that's, I mean, I wouldn't want to be a bad guy. Let's put it that way. Uh, some of the stuff that's out there. I mean, I'm sure there are bad guys that get your hands on some of this stuff too, but geez, I'm just going to go ahead and continue to be boring in my life and stay out of the, stay out of the messing with the law. But, uh, well, speaking anyway, of bad guys, I mean, you have a bad guy story, don't you? I do. Yeah. <laughs> I have a trespasser showed up uh, last night. I texted you. I was like, hey, I got my first trespasser in three years. It's hard to complain about that. And to me, obviously, there's a difference between the person that accidentally wanders on to your place. That happens. I mean, it's, it's the way it goes sometimes, especially at night. Uh, in the past, when I've had this come up, it's been people that if they have flashlights on their head, they're trying to go to a stand or something and they get lost and get misdirected. But this guy clearly knew exactly what he was doing and he's Amish. And uh, he, uh, I live in or my land is near a big Amish community, but uh, very quickly I've been able to narrow down uh, what family he's, he's comes from. So uh, we will just have to have a conversation. But uh, anyway, it sounds like he was out doing some shed hunting and uh, that's great. I mean, I'd encourage anybody to go shed hunting. You should just do it where you're allowed to do it, not, a, not on other people's property. So you ask uh, permission. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So anyway, uh, it's an annoyance. It's not the end of the world, uh, but uh, important to get that addressed. Uh, hey, also, uh, speaking of working with, with other people for better or for worse, I had a job shadower last week on Friday. That was cool. I uh, got to take a young man out who's interested in this field and shown some things out in the field. Um, uh you know, it's always sort of eye-opening, I think, because from a, you know, this is a senior or, excuse me, a junior in high school, and he sees from an outside perspective what I do. But I had him sit in on some meetings with me 
that were very diverse in the types of things we talked about and then took him out into the field. And I think it was an eye-opening experience, eye-opening experience for him. And Mike, when we were both young bucks, we just, you know, job shadowing wasn't really uh, a big thing, but now I'm, I'm glad that we do it. And I think it really helps people understand kind of what goes on out there sort of in the day of the life of someone like myself or someone like yourself. Yeah. And, you know, being involved in higher ed, it's expensive. And so to make sure that a young individual coming up experiences a lot of options, it might help them make a better decision where, you know, they decide, okay, higher ed might not be for me or higher ed is something for me. And if they can at least get their life start off right without having to backtrack or divert or recalibrate. So efficiency is always a good thing and being confident with what you're going to do is in my opinion always a, a good outcome yeah absolutely and I, I got as much enjoyment out of out of it as he did he got a day out of school <laughs> incidentally groundhog day is when they do the job shadowing because of the whole shadow thing of course and you know the doctor and i well the doctor worked many years in punxsutawney and i was born in punxsutawney so groundhog day uh, to us is it's kind of like a real thing that we live here every year but uh, anyway a good experience and then next week i'm off to the Southeast Deer Study Group, where I'll get a chance to see uh, some of the best and latest research going on in the deer world. I always look forward to that. Uh, some folks from the National Deer Association, Kip Adams and Ben Westfall will be presenting, and that will be in Shepherdstown, West Virginia this year, which is nice because I can drive to it. It's just two and a half hours away from me. I don't even have to get into an airplane, so uh, looking forward to that one as well. Content-wise, that's a couple announcements here. We are starting to post several articles about food plots, and we're getting to that point in the year where spring food plots need to be, uh, let's put it this way, you're not ready to plant them yet, especially in the north. However, it's getting real close to that point where we start talking about things like frost seeding and putting things in the ground for spring plots. And if you're waiting until the end of March to get ready for that, you can very quickly miss that window. And so be paying attention to that. Check out the content. Uh, and also, I also want to mention that our Deer Season 365 podcast last week, uh, Kip Adams was the guest on that show, and he gives a really good summary of the 2024 Deer Report. So if you haven't read that report yet or you just want the Cliff Notes version, make sure you go and check that out. And also, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that uh, our good friend and former Director of Policy, Torin Miller, has moved on from the National Deer Association. We've had him on the show. He's going to go work for the Sportsman's Alliance. And uh, people may not know that Torin was also a, a licensed attorney, and this new position is going to allow him to be a little bit more of an attorney. So um, Torin did great work while he was here. He and I worked together for, I think, the last five years or more, and just a great guy. And we certainly will miss him here and wish him luck. And we're currently recruiting for his replacement. All right, folks, that's a wrap on this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. As always, we thank you for listening and for your support. National Deer Association, we are united for deer. <laughs>